Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Lori Manchester about her book, Holy Father's Secular Sons, Clergy, Intelligentsia, and the Modern Self in Revolutionary Russia. The book I remember most from graduate school about the Russian Orthodox clergy was I.S. Belutsin's description of the clergy in rural Russia. A Paris priest himself, Bell Lutzen lambasted the Orthodox clergy for their drunkenness and utter disregard for the souls of their flock. This image of the clergy has stuck with me ever since. Enter Laurie Manchester's Holy Father's Secular Sons. This fascinating book completely altered my image of the backward and often drunken priest. Laurie charged the departure of sons of priests or Popovici from the caste-like clergy to more modern and secular professions, academics, doctors, journalists, educators, and businessmen. Some even became socialist revolutionaries. However, we would be wrong to assume that adopting these new professions meant they abandoned their orthodox upbringing. On the contrary, many Popovici maintained and stressed their religious traditions, ethics, and worldview and their new secular mission to save Russia. Lori's study of Popovici, therefore, provides a much-needed challenge to our image of the secular, westernized Russian intelligent by showing that, for the sons of priests, the self-fashioning of a secular identity never strayed too far from its religious antecedents. So without further ado, here's my interview with Lori. Hi, Lori. Hi, Sean. Uh, welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about your book, Holy Fathers, Secular Sons. Uh, clergy, Intelligentsia, and the Modern Self in Revolutionary Russia. Um, just to begin on the interview, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and why you chose to study the history of Imperial Russia and the Orthodox clergy? Okay, well, I came to Russian history uh, through Russian literature, which I don't think is uh, particularly unusual. I went to an um, alternative high school in New England, uh, which was kind of a hippie high school, which has long since closed, where some of the teachers had PhDs and where you chose your own curriculum. There were a lot of tutorials. And my junior and senior year there, I took a tutorial with the headmaster who had a PhD in English literature. And every week I would choose a book from the World Literary Canon and write a paper on it, and we would discuss it. And very quickly, I discovered Russian literature, especially Dostoevsky, but not just Dostoevsky. After reading all of Dostoevsky in translation, we basically read all of Russian literature I could find in translation. So I was very passionate about Russia already when I went to college. But I went to college as a classics major, believe it or not. Okay. I, I did not think I was very good at languages. And so Latin in high school had really appealed to me because it was not a spoken language. 
And I had really excelled in tutorials in Latin and I'd actually read the Aeneid in the entirety my junior year in, in high school. And so I took all these Latin courses my freshman year, but I also in college my first year took Russian literature and translation and was always taking history courses. I always loved history. And so then the question began, well, if I'm really going to be a classics major my sophomore year, I should take Greek. And yet I was really drawn. Wouldn't Russian be easier to learn than Greek? And I love everything. <laughs> Russian. And what, what's funny is that uh, to actually admit this, I don't think I ever have. Um, I'm not a fan of, of Hollywood portrayals of, um, of Russia. And yet it was Reds, Warren Beatty's movie Reds, that I saw my freshman year in college that when I decided I'm going to learn the Russian language. And so then my sophomore year, I took Russian, went to Middlebury, summer of 83. And after that, there was no turning back. Uh, there was a dilemma when I graduated from college. Was I going to get a PhD in Russian history or in Slavic language and literature? And I had written my honors thesis at, at Wellesley College, where I went to college, um, on the rural urban nexus in Yesenin and Mayakovsky's poetry in wow. the 1920s. Yeah, and I used, I had been able to read them in the original. And I think I took a year off, spent a semester and a summer in Moscow on ACTR. And I think what dissuaded me from getting the PhD in Slavic language and literature was that I would have to learn two more Slavic languages in addition to French and German, which I had to learn for many of the top history programs anyways, such as the one I went to at Columbia. So I decided on history, knowing uh, full well that I wanted to work on the Russian intelligentsia because of my interest in the literature and also in working on Mayakovsky and Yusinin, I'd become very interested in the intelligentsia and their sort of self-imposed leadership of Russia. And uh, yet I wasn't particularly uh, keen on the Soviet period. I felt that the Soviet period was limited. Mm -hmm. Limited in that sense. And at that time, people weren't studying anything but the 20s and 30s. And uh, the archives were still closed. And so I decided I wanted to do the late imperial period. And right before the revolution, you know, say the 20, 30, 40 years before the revolution. Um, and then uh, my first year at Columbia, and Columbia we had to write a master, so we weren't encouraged to come to Columbia already with a topic in hand. And my first semester, Mark Ryaf was there one more year at Columbia after I got there, and I took his 18th century colloquium on Russian history, and it was arranged by social state groups. I picked the clergy probably because I'm not, um, I had no religious upbringing, my, my parents were not religious, and so I've always been sort of fascinated by religion. And the two memoirs he gave me to read in Russian were both written by Popovici. And at the same time, I was you know, reading all this Russian historiography and reading everything written on the Russian intelligentsia, also in courses with Leopold Hamsen. And I was struck by you know, Spiransky, Chernyshevsky, Dobrolubov, Nikolaevsky, and I couldn't believe that no one had done a study of this group. By the end of my freshman year, I had my topic both for my master's and uh, for my dissertation. Wow. And, and it's funny because, you know, orthodoxy being so important to Russian culture, that's so little work has been done on orthodoxy and the orthodox priesthood in particular. I mean, besides, um, I, now I'm blanking on his name, of Greg course. Greg Fries. Yeah, Greg no, Fries, yes. His work was absolutely pioneering because he was the one to show how it became caste-like, that it was the most caste-like of, 
other social estate groups. But there's a lot of work that's been done now, say, in the last uh, 10, 15 years on Russian Orthodoxy. But what I'm still frustrated by, and this became something that I was very much aware of when I started to ask the question of, well, why hasn't anybody studied the Popovici? And what I found was that I was running up against uh, in our field, and I, it's not just our field, I think it's in um, Western academia in general, sort of this assumption that if you were educated, you weren't religious, right? right? This belief in traditional secularization theory, and uh, so that if you were going to study piety in pre-revolutionary Russia, you would focus on the pre-modern peasants, right? Because to be modern meant to be secular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that very much frustrated me. It also became clear to me, once I started reading Popovici's published memoirs for my master's, that um, I was also running up against this idea that uh, Russians were segregated in terms of their worldviews by what political party they joined or by their profession, right? Because at this time, late 80s, early 90s, people were doing studies on professional ethos. Right. And what I found was that the only thing that connected Popovici and that they wanted to be connected by really was their social origin. And so Popovici, who were Bolsheviks, Popovici, who were monarchist theology professors, uh, Popovici, who were doctors, teachers, they all had the same ethos. Uh, so this was was very new. And I think another reason why Popovici were ignored was it was simply assumed that they left the clergy because they were rejecting their origins and that they were all atheists. And of course, this was propagated by Soviet historians who had no choice living in an atheist state. Uh, but Western historians picked up on that and didn't investigate it. And I think also there were the social mobility theories of the 1960s. It was, it, a lot of work was done on the nobility. And so the idea was, oh, these poor Popovici, you know, who don't speak French and don't know how to dance, they're just going to try to fit in once they enter the noble-dominated intelligentsia. And, of course, I found the exact opposite. You've mentioned that the Orthodox priesthood is, is one of the most closed castes or closed estates in Russian society. Why don't you talk about a, a bit about that, uh, the Orthodox priesthood as a closed caste? Okay, uh, now, uh, they were closed uh, in many ways. Uh, they studied, and this was something Peter the Great enforced upon them, they studied in their own uh, closed estate schools, the church school and the seminary, which are collectively known uh, by, as the Bursa. Uh, and because they financed those schools, they were very protective and did not want non-clergy to study in them, even if some pious peasant boy or pious noble boy wanted to study there. Um, so that even in the 1860s, once uh, Popovici were given uh, secular legal status at birth, and it was retroactively given to them, uh, we don't see non-clergy entering the clergy uh, up until 1917, in a few cases, but it's extremely exceptional. So the, the point is, is that once mobility is possible um, out of the estate, there isn't mobility into the estate. On top of that, there was endogamy. Clergy married clergy. Uh, and this was something that the church hierarchy became um, worried about in the 1860s when they started to emphasize romantic marriages, and they didn't want marriages between clergy to be simply um, an arranged marriage. Uh, but they argued that, well, noble girls aren't going to marry into the clergy because it's too much physical work. Uh, the clergy was so much poorer and ran agricultural households. And yet the morals of the peasantry or the merchantry and the townspeople were suspect. 
Um, so you end up having intermarriage, uh, you end up not having uh, new people entering the estate. Uh, so it was very much a closed estate group. And this was also uh, in terms of their socializing, uh, because parishioners really didn't want to let their hair down when they were with their spiritual leaders. And uh, the clergy didn't want to let their hair down when they were with their parishioners, uh, who would then often report on them if they drank a little bit too much or uh, did not act in a clerical manner. Um, so you really see this, this, um, this differentiation of imperial Russian society, not so much into social estate groups, but in laity versus clergy, more so than with any social estate group. Now, Tell us about the, uh, this pastoral care movement, which I actually had never heard of until I read in your book, that developed in the 1840s and gained momentum in the 1860s. Uh, what was this movement and what was its mission? Okay, well, this, this movement is usually dated to the 1860s. I dated to the 1840s because it was in 1840 that pastoral theology started to be taught in the seminary, uh, and that's when you really see a proliferation of texts. It, it becomes a mass movement, indeed, in the 1860s and the 1870s. Uh, and what's interesting is it's directly influenced by German pietism. Uh, the first pastoral theology textbooks that were published in Russia were translated from the German. Uh, but what one can see in terms of it becoming a mass movement in the 1860s is that in the 1860s, the church, during this, this whole reform movement that affects the church as much as it does uh, the Russian state and society, the church starts to question the idea of the czar fulfilling his part of the social contract, right? They start to question the idea that the czar... Uh, rules the earthly realm and we rule the heavenly realm because they argue the czar is not keeping up his bargain, the peasants are a mess, Russia is in crisis, we need to do something. And so uh, what one sees is clergy who, some of whom had already been doing some of these roles before, it's not like they were just invented then, but suddenly you start to see clergy opening schools in their homes in a much um, a much greater uh, instance than before. You start to see them holding paraliturgical discussions with their parishioners. You start to see them disseminating charity and organizing charitable uh, institutions. Um, medicinal aid, when they did know something, because medicine starts being taught in the seminary in 1840. Also agronomy. And it's not just the men, although I focus on the men in my book. I have an article that is coming out with the Journal of Modern History this month, which focuses on clerical wives and daughters and their role in pastoral care as a way of civilizing the clergy. But what's interesting is it's a civilization mission, but it's one which the clergy did not see as synonymous with westernization or modernization. Well, that's really that's really quite interesting. Um, and this goes into the other thing, the fact that you talk about how priests were represented as other within Russian society. So it's it goes along with their whole idea that they have a, a separate civilizing mission. Um, and you say that this mark of otherness followed their sons uh, when they entered the secular world. Um, what was the nature of this otherness and how was it reinforced by how Russians perceived the Popovichi? Okay, well, the clergy, first of all, were not allowed to leave their homes unless they were wearing their Cossacks, right? And they so they were immediately recognized. Now, their sons, of course, are not ordained, uh, so you would think that the sons would blend in. Well, they didn't. They didn't in, in part because, um, as I found when I started to try to find all of my Popovici and the many archives I worked in, uh, they had recognizable 
last names, last names that were given to them uh, in the seminary in the late 18th, early 19th century. So you could tell right off the bat by the last name that this person was from the clergy. But also, once they entered the secular intelligentsia, they could read usually French or German and Latin and Greek, but they didn't speak French or German. They had not learned dancing. They had not learned drawing. Their manners were entirely different from those of the nobles. Uh, so they were immediately seen as different and saw themselves um, as different. And the many stereotypes, uh, some anti-clerical, that were associated with the clergy were associated with the sons. Um, I argue in the book that social origin is something that has really been played down in the historiography, that if you look at memoirs of Russians written in the late imperial period, when someone starts their memoir, they almost automatically identify who, what social state group they're from. But also when they write about individuals, they often, just even net revolutionaries in, passion, in passing, will mention what social state group that they are from. But as an other, what's interesting is that Popovici were, uh, so at times they were disparaged, specifically in the pre-reform period by nobles, but they were also at times worshipped right? Because we have this dynamic of the other. The other is always completely different from you, uh, but can be a one of two extremes. So in the 1870s, when you have the repentant noblemen who are progressive noble, radical nobles who are rebelling against their serf-owning fathers, you, uh, you have Popovici suddenly becoming an object of great interest and their values, their seriousness, their industriousness, uh, the similarities between the daily life of the peasants and the clergy suddenly become fascinating to nobles. Uh, and I argue that this allows Popovici to have a real impact on the noble intelligentsia. By the turn of the century, there's a switch again. With the advent of Marxism, which associates the church and state, the, the state, the church is simply a handmaiden of the state, but also when you see this resurgence among the landed nobility of this sense of a noble ethos that will save Russia, um, again, you, you see Popovici being described as polluting secular society, and we have to keep them uh, away, their culture, the way they write is primitive, it's not the same as, as, as our noble culture. And what's interesting is they were seen so much as an other, it's almost as a different ethnicity, and in this I'm, I'm um, in part inspired by Peter Colchin's work as socialist state as race, and his work on, on pre-revolutionary or pre-reformed peasants. Uh, they were seen as physically different. Nobles described them as having different noses, uh, that you could physically, that they had these long gangly hands and that you could physically recognize them. Um, and Kabitanosov, uh, uh, who was the grandson, he wasn't even the son of a priest, you know, was described as having the blood of priests running through his veins. So it's seen as often genetic, wow. uh, the social estate affiliation. Wow, that's actually, it takes on this very uh, mark of modernity, this kind of biologicalization of their caste. That's, that's quite fascinating. But, you know, as you say, on the flip side of this otherness was the fact that the Popovici and their father saw themselves as distinct. Um, how, did, and yeah. how, how did they perceive, the, perceive other Russians, um, especially through the paradigm of virtue and sin? Yes, uh, very much. I mean, one, one thing that I was very intent on, on trying to do in the book was um, when I first started working on this topic, you know, often and, and because it was a controversial topic that was coming up against so much in the historiography, uh, people would say to me, well, if you just look at their memoirs, you know, how are you going to be able to prove, you know, they say that they got their values. 
uh, from their their clerical origins and their clerical upbringing, but how can you prove this? Maybe they're just assimilating the values of the noble intelligentsia. So it was very important for me to have this be a study of self-fashioning, uh, where I actually looked at clerical prescriptive texts, uh, uh, seminary textbooks, sermons, um, prescriptive etiquette guides that were written for the clergy and actually showed that, that in, in Popovici and their father's personal texts, they were trying to model themselves after these particular values. And so when I looked at their attitudes towards different social estate groups, I started by looking at, okay, here's the prescriptive view if we look at, say, the mid-19th century uh, church publicists, what they are writing about the nobility, the peasantry, the urban estates, and here's what the clergy wrote, and here's what Popovici wrote. And I was able to show how incredibly similar they were. Basically, Popovici saw themselves as the only leaders of Russian society. Uh, their main foes were the nobility, and this makes sense because these were the two, the only two social estate groups. And they described the nobility as the most sinful estate you could possibly imagine, right? Nobles were lazy, nobles were gluttonous, nobles were parasites who sucked the blood of the peasantry. Uh, they were not even Russian. Their association with foreignness is always brought up. The urban estates weren't much better either. Uh, they weren't much better uh, because, yes, they might be pious and not connected with foreign culture like the nobles, but there's a strong anti-capitalist sentiment in 19th century Russian orthodoxy and this sense that it's sinful to make money off of trade, off of someone else's, something that someone else has made. Uh, so the urban estates are, are rejected. Then, of course, the peasantry is not rejected, but the peasantry need to be led. The peasantry are Popovici's brothers, but they're their little brothers. Uh, and they need to be enlightened and they need uh, leaders. Um, and Popovici's sense of moral leadership is key to an idea that runs throughout my book. And that's the idea that Popovici brought modern selfhood to, to Russian society. Um, and this is important because Russia didn't experience a, re a renaissance or a reformation or a codification of individual rights in law. But I argue that uh, because Popovici came from this, this clerical state where they were raised to be moral leaders, uh, because of certain differences between Eastern and Western Christianity, uh, there's minor differences and mainly revolve around uh, differences in interpretation of original sin. And because of this Reformation-like movement in the late 19th century among the clergy, which is tied to pastoral care, I argue that Popovici had a real sense of modern selfhood, of an activist self who should and can change their world, uh, and that they then bring this to Russian society. So how they view themselves as leaders is really key to this, um, this concept of modern selfhood. And in addition to this concept, the concept that you just posited about selfhood, you also get a kind of care of the self. Um, yeah. and, and this is, in, especially in your chapters on, on the behavioral and ethical norms of mm -hmm. uh, that, that constructed Popovich uh, identity. Uh, talk a bit about um, the role of the priest's family for these norms, and in particular, the family as a place for piety and morality, which are the two concepts that you say kind of solidify this, this, these ethical notions. 
Well, uh, indeed, and this was something that the clergy and their sons uh, were taught and were inculcated in by the church hierarchy. Uh, what one sees, um, as I've said, in the 1860s, the church is aware that Russia is in crisis. To the church, this is primarily a moral crisis. And so they decide that a way to get out of this crisis is to elevate the priesthood. And uh, they do this by writing all sorts of, uh, of articles in the newly emergent clerical press, which emerges in the 1860s, you know, about how priests are higher than angels, priests are higher than monks. Uh, and, and basically, they also have a number of, uh, of regulations, rules for the clerical family, because Russian Orthodox priests weren't required by canon law to marry, but by tradition, they all had to marry to get ordained. So you have this phenomenon whereby not just the priest, but his entire family was supposed to serve as an example to all parishioners of how they should live their lives. And the church felt that if you had this perfect family, uh, then all Russians would start behaving better. So clerical family members, their children and wives of priests, had to go to confession more often. Now, whether they were truly more pious or moral, of, of course, is questionable. Piety is, uh, is an individual act. It's something that can't be enforced externally. Uh, but what I can say is that Popovici themselves argue that in their homes they fasted more than other parishioners, and the whole rhythm of their lives revolved around the church. From a very young age, Popovici served in church with their fathers. They went out with their fathers from their fathers blessed uh, peasant homes, and this very much reinforced this idea that they were Russia's uh, moral leaders. Mm -hmm. And and what about also the norms that are expressed in publicist views on children and their child rearing, and also the role, talk a bit about the role of mothers slash wives and fathers slash husbands in, in the family, the particular yeah. roles. In clerical families, there were definitely uh, gendered roles that were prescribed by church publicists and which Popovici very much uh, bought into. It's interesting. I did a comparison between child-rearing articles and books written by church publicists for children from other estate groups and then those uh, that were written for the clergy. And when a church publicist described the roles of mothers and fathers for other estate groups, the role of the father was really not very important. The mother was absolutely central in terms of the moral upbringing, physical upbringing, preschool education, if there was any. When it comes to the clergy, all bets are off. It's completely different. And that was because by the mid-19th century, there's this elevation of the priesthood. And so clerical sons, the future priests of Russia, were too important to be simply put in the hands of mothers. And for the, the 19th century clergy, there's very much this gendered notion of associating women with the body. So it was okay for women, clerical mothers, to be involved in their son's physical upbringing, but not their moral upbringing and not their education. That was something that had to be supervised by the father or if the father wasn't around by a male relative. Well, that's, is there a particular notion of masculinity for for? male for priests that might be different than than general masculine notions of masculinity in russian society because of this well of course within the orthodox church women are forbidden to play a liturgical role uh, so what i argue is um because when one reads popovich's descriptions of their mothers and their fathers you know i, I was i was surprised to find you know, there's this worship of the fathers but not only the worship of the fathers but they often 
at the same time put their mothers down. Uh, and I think for them, this was a trope. It was a juxtapositioning um, because their fathers, because their fathers are uh, performing the liturgy, their fathers are the ultimate symbols of the clerical estate. Whereas their mothers, even though they're members of the clerical estate, aren't fulfilling an official function. So I don't really think that they had such low opinions of their mothers, but it's a way of really stating, I affiliate myself with the clerical estate, if they're going to juxtapose the fathers against the mothers. Um, another notion uh, that you talk about, which I found really interesting, is that the Popovici embraced a, an idea of the happy childhood. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, and the... Talk about this role of the happy childhood narrative uh, in, in Popovich identity, and especially how it pertains to the Popovich as an alternative intelligentsia. Yes, I mean, one of the key ideas of the book, besides modern selfhood, is that Popovich represented an alternative intelligentsia to the noble intelligentsia that most of them entered in the 1860s. And uh, by the time Popovici were writing their autobiographies in the late 19th century, the genre of the happy, noble childhood had already been established. Uh, Andrew Wattel has written a brilliant book about it. And what one sees is that childhood plays a key role in them articulating their collective identity, uh, in part because their collective identity is all about differentiating themselves and juxtaposing themselves to the nobles. So they present a happy childhood, but it is the exact opposite of the noble happy childhood. All of the values associated with the noble childhood, uh, happy childhood, such as freedom, uh, indulgence, luxury, uh, the, the, the great house that the nobles grew up at, romping with these serf children, is completely presented, the opposite is presented in Popovich's childhood. One has a stark sense of industriousness, learnedness, poverty, modesty, austerity, but they're all presented as extremely positive. So it's a way of differentiating themselves from the nobility, but it's also a way of saying these are the central values of our alternative uh, intelligentsia. What's also important is the particular childhood, the happy clerical childhood, is very much affiliated with the peasantry, and it is true that clerical and peasant daily life were very similar. Uh, but Popovici go out of their way to emphasize the similarities. They're constantly bringing up when they describe clerical diet, clerical household chores, the fact that they worked in the fields alongside their fathers. They're constantly bringing up just like the peasants. And there's also an element of nationalism here, which again, they're juxtaposing to the foreign tutors, the, the foreign uh, or, or the, the wet nurses uh, that the nobility used uh, and then when they write about the clergy, they really emphasize everything about it being Russian national, that there's nobody speaking French or German. They'll even take negative aspects of the so-called Russian national identity, like uh, excessive drinking or fistfights, and ascribe them to the clerical estate as a way, again, of saying, we were the real Russians. We are the real Russians. Oh, that's fascinating. It's also, in, in addition to an alternative intelligentsia, it's an, alt uh, an alternative nationalism, which is, is quite an interesting concept, too. Um, uh, well, to Popovich, though, there's only one national. I mean, to Popovich, <laughs> nobles can't be nationalists because they're Russian. Right, right. But at least for our purposes, for exactly. understanding the you know different nationalism within Russia, it's quite interesting that they. I mean, I, I didn't know that they have, are carving out even their own national idea. It's, it's quite. It, it it has a lot of implications for understanding the Russian nation as a whole. Well, but but it makes sense. You see, they have the trump card. This is an age of populism. 
and and nobles, you have plenty of noble populace, but Popovici has the trump card because they can say, hey, wait a minute, we worked the fields just like the peasants did. Our daily life was very much like the peasants. Yours wasn't. So, at, but as a result, there's, there's a negative side to this, whereas you see guilt towards the peasantry in noble narratives. You do not see that in Popovici. They, they reject any notion that the clergy or at least their fathers in any way, shape, or form, exploited the peasantry. Um, so, and, and this is something that, you know, that was noticed, it, it was called before sort of a Rasnachinsi populism versus a, uh, a non-noble populism versus a noble populism, but um, it's, it's not a Rasnachinsi populism. It, it's a directly a clerical populism, but that lack of guilt, uh, to me, can be linked to some of the more dangerous aspects of the intelligentsia, deciding that they're going to lead and serve the people no matter what the people want. Right, no matter what, by whatever means, too. By whatever means. Yeah. Um, another. So you have a, a couple of different experiences or, or norms and ethics going around shaping Popovich identity. You have the, the ethics of family, you have this happy childhood, and then another important experience for shaping Popovich's identity was the clerical schools or the bursas. How did this experience shape their worldview? Well, this is fascinating because Popovich present the bursa experience, which was about 12 years of their lives in boarding schools, as the exact opposite of their clerical childhoods. And they even do it in biblical Christian terms. Childhood was heaven on earth. The Bursa was hell on earth. And yet, if you look more closely at the values that are instilled in them in both institutions, the institutions of the family, the institutions of the Bursa, what one sees is these values are actually very similar. Um, so in the Bursa, they go out of their way to, um, to, to dwell on the material deprivation, uh, the beatings, the physical punishment that they endured. Uh, and yet uh, the, that material deprivation, the physical punishment is, again, it's austerity, asceticism, poverty, uh, humility, modesty, a lot of the same values that one sees uh, in the clerical family. And in the 1860s, uh, it was forbidden to flog seminarians uh, the way it had been before. And there was still some physical punishment. I mean, definitely the Bursa was a much harder school to go to than the gymnasium. There was ear pulling, hair pulling. But what one finds is these fantastic tales among Popovici. For example, one Popovich arguing that uh, not a single child uh, in, in our Bursa had any hair on their head because it had all pulled out. Or, you know, you'll have a memoir that's devoted exclusively to flogging, and that's all that is written about. Wow. So it's clear that the, the aspect of martyrdom in the Bursa is what is central to them. But again, just as with their childhoods, what they're doing is they're juxtaposing the Bursa experience with the gymnasium experience. The gymnasium experience, in their eyes at least, is one of indulgence, luxury. They were never beaten. But... Um, one of the reasons why the Bursa got such a bad rap in the historiography, and, and this is another reason why Popovici were ignored, it was, it was argued that, you know, how on earth could the clergy have produced an alternative culture when uh, people would read some of the memoirs about the Bursa experience and say, all of there is is rote memorization and beating. These kids can't be learning anything. <laughs> but the is, is that the first six years of the Bursa were spent in the church school, and that's where you had the rote memorization. The, the second part of the Borsa experience was the seminary, the last six years. And even very few people, which you wrote about it, most wrote about the horrific church school. But those who did write about the seminary, they all argued the seminary was a lot better. 
And in the seminary, you didn't have rote memorization. Instead, you had critical thinking. You had a much more intensive curriculum, a different curriculum, indeed, than in the gymnasium. But you had a seminary and studying longer. I've looked at some of the essays that they wrote in their personal collections, up to 80, 90 pages with footnotes to several different foreign languages. Um, but Popovici, believe me, were aware of this. Others might not have been. And so they argued, first of all, that it was such a rough experience that you had to be superior human beings to get through it, right? No noble would have been able to get through it. But second of all, that they were smarter, better prepared. And, and it, it ends up, the Bursa ends up feeding into, again, this idea that they are Russia's moral leaders. And it ends up also cementing their collective identity because when they were having their wonderful clerical childhoods, they were living in individual families. With the Bursa, they're all studying together. And so there's this real sense of, of comradeship, of you, you know, one Borsak can tell another Borsak a mile away, uh, that they all went through this school of hard knocks and it's made them into real men. And this is where you really get this sense of clerical masculinity. Uh, which is, you know, a very tough sort of macho uh, masculinity. And, and what's wild is that some of the writers who wrote the most horrific, famous accounts of the Borsa ended up attending emotional reunions that were held at the turn of the century and up until the revolution uh, in which they, you know, they cry and they write about how wonderful the seminary was. Uh, so clearly it was a formative influence in their lives. And it also, it, it clearly preparing them for a life outside of the clergy, which leads to my next, next question. Um, you know, your focus is on those Popovici who didn't become priests, who left the clerical estate altogether. Why would one of them, why would they do this? Why would priest sons abandon the life as a clergyman? Well, this is very interesting because what one finds in their descriptions uh, of why they left the clergy, one finds it's always for ethical reasons. And one comes up against a real contradiction. When one reads the part of the autobiography, which is devoted to why they left, one suddenly is jarred by a description of a clerical world very different from the clerical world that the Popovich experienced as a child. Suddenly, all of the complaints that were made at the time by the parish clergy about having to haggle with peasants, about corruption, about the poverty, about having too many jobs to fulfill, about all the abuse from the monks and everything else, suddenly that is thrust in one's face. None of the wonderful things about their childhood are brought up. Instead, they argue, if we go into the clergy, we will not be able to retain our clerical values. So ironically, in order to retain clerical values, they had to leave the clergy. There's also a subgenre, which is that some of them don't feel, because they, they see their fathers as so godlike, they don't think that they're going to be able to live up to their father's image so that they're not good enough to enter the clergy. But overall, it's the sense that to preserve clerical values, we have to enter the secular world. And how do the fathers respond to this? Well, this is what's interesting. Uh, it was, again, sort of assumed that by leaving the clergy, their fathers would have disowned them. Uh, even in the case of Bolshevik Popovici, uh, I found very strong uh, family relations. In my book, I talk about Preobrazhensky, the, the famous Bolshevik, and how he continued to visit his parents up until the time they were dequalicized in the 1930s. Um, very close family relations. The fathers understood, and the father's response was usually, sometimes the sons would ask the fathers because they were so close for advice in letters and write, you know, Papa, what should I do? And the father would write back and say, it's not for me to say, it's for God. 
to tell you. And this was also uh, in the mid 19th century. It was also a time when vocation was starting to be talked about a lot. And within the clergy, there was an attack on the sacred estate being a closed estate, right? The, the notion was that you shouldn't become a priest unless you have God's calling to do so. And so the fathers were very much influenced by this. So if the son, and, and also if the son explained that, you know, I want to go become a doctor because I want to serve the peasants and I want to help them the way you, Papa, help the peasants in your parish duties, the father would say, go ahead. Or the, the parents would say things like, well, as long as you keep going to church and as long as you stay in touch with us and, and visit us often, you'll be fine. And what kind of professions did they go into? Well, this, this I was able to, to show because uh, it's interesting. Uh, this is something I, when you were asking me how I got into the topic, I, I wanted to tell a, a funny story about how uh, influenced, I think, by Leopold Hameson's uh, massive uh, work at the time on quantitative history. When I first entered graduate school, we all worked as graduates, as students, uh, assistants, in putting all the data on workers for him. And uh, I actually did a study for my master's using Lotus 123. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's just so ironic thinking of all the theoretical terms that my book took that I actually started off doing some quantitative <laughs> And I had the records at Columbia that were published of 7,002 uh, Vladimir seminarians, you know, where they went off to live as adults, what their professions were. And it ended up being, you know, a single table in my book. But actually, I was able to show some hard data, show when they tended to leave, what professions they tended to go into when. And I was able to show that the two professions that they went into quantitatively the most were the medical profession and the teaching profession on all levels, primary, secondary and academia. And they really shunned the bureaucracy, only went into the bureaucracy when other professions were closed to them. Uh, and they were not interested in law. Again, a noble dominated profession. They go into service professions that really fit into the pastoral care movement. So they literally see themselves and write about themselves as doing for the people what their fathers are doing. Mm -hmm. So in these professions, they're reconciling their, the clerical traditions and ethos into their secular lives. Exactly. But they argue that they're able to do it better because, again, when they describe why they're leaving the clergy, they then describe the clergy as a corrupt estate. So they're, they're saying, hey, we can do this, but we don't have to, the way priests have to make a pledge to violate the confession. If someone comes and, you know, this was from the time of Peter the Great onwards, if someone comes and tells of a political crime, we're not constrained by that. We can be independent in a way that our fathers couldn't. Uh, we don't have the church hierarchy, which they were very anti-monastic clergy, as was the parish clergy. The monastic clergy had all the power, and they're arguing we don't have that hanging over us. So we have greater freedom than our fathers to save Russia. Um, another interesting thing is you talk about uh, the issue of salvation, in particular salvation in a secular world, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, how is this first talk about what is this search for salvation and how is it reflected in their political, professional and personal lives? Well, what I found about the Popovici ethos was that they were particularly single minded. And so I found that um, from the start, I mean, that this is an extremely diverse group, as I've said, there were Bolshevik Popovici, there were monarch monarchist theology professors. And so definitely they didn't have politics in common. They didn't have the profession they went into in common, except for, you could say, service professions. If you see a revolutionary terrorist, as well, I guess they see themselves as serving somebody. <laughs> but uh, serving Russia, of course, saving Russia. Uh, but, but what I was able to show was that for all of them, 
they saw whatever they were doing in the secular world as a salvation mission. And I was able to identify that it was either professional, personal, or political. Now, while the sphere, the professional, political, or um, uh, personal sphere could change over the course of their lifetime, what I found was that while they were pursuing that particular sphere, they pursued it 100%, to the point where, say, if you had a Popovich scientist, he would tend not to be politically active at all. He would pursue his science 100%, often not marrying. Whereas you might have a Popovich who is in the middle of a romance, that woman will be his concept of salvation. But very interestingly, I mean, the, the whole fact that the Russian intelligentsia did not uh, see a differentiation between public and private was identified decades ago, right? And Martin Malia wrote beautifully uh, in the 1830s how love could be salvation uh, for Russian intelligentsia. But it's very different for Popovici. Whereas for noble intelligentsia in the 1830s, love could be salvation in that the woman would save you. Popovici are always the saviors. The woman is always beneath them like all the other Russians, and they're going to do the saving if that woman then will 100% bow to that Popovich's will. Uh, and because, as I, I argue, these salvation missions were all utopian missions, they're not successful. Uh, so they tended to have very unhappy personal lives and then to quickly move on to either a political mission or a professional mission. But in their pursuit of it, they're not only single-minded, there's a sense of lack of compromise, uh, seriousness, extreme industriousness to the point where many of them uh, work themselves to death or at least are described by friends and relatives as having died at a young age because they never slept. Wow. Uh, how, do you ex uh, how do you explain this single-mindedness on the one hand and then also how does this contribute to a particular notion or a modern notion of the self? Well, I think the single-mindedness uh, can be connected to uh, their father's mission, which was also supposed to be single-minded in that the fathers were supposed to lead their parishioners to salvation, right? Their fathers were supposed to do this through uh, performing the sacraments, but also increasingly through pastoral care. And I think Popovici took that very seriously and then secularized it. Um, and uh, secularization is something... I'm very interested in. My book is about uh, really um, challenging traditional notions of secularization, that secularization leads to a lesser influence of religion in the world. What I try to show is that secularization leads to a broader dissemination of religion as it enters new modern spheres like politics and professions that hadn't existed before. And in, in the case of Russia, that didn't really exist before the mid uh, 19th century. So the single-mindedness um, I, I see as coming from this highly moralistic religious mission that they see themselves performing uh, in the secular world. So it's a secularization of the traditional salvation uh, mission. Um, in terms of modern selfhood, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I think all modern selves uh, need to be single-minded. I think there's something specific uh, to Popovici uh, and to the context within Russia at the time. And um, what was the fate of, of the Popovici and their ethos after the revolution? Well, this is an interesting question. It's one that I did not consider at all uh, until after I wrote the complete first draft of the book. And I gave this first draft to Yuri Silskin and to Mark Ryoff, and they both had the same reaction, which was that Yuri, since he's a historian of the Soviet period, really pushed me 
on, you know, you've discovered this new ethos, it's fascinating, it's, you know, it's so important, it can't have disappeared after 1917. And Mark Ryoff said, you know, the book ends pessimistically. I mean, can't you find some Popovich who lived through the Soviet period or in the emigration and give us some hope? Uh, so uh, I thought a lot about it. And I, I realized that uh, the, the one profession or the one aspect of Soviet society that I saw as imbued, imbued with Popovich's values was Soviet academia. And I, I then uh, showed this in two different ways. One was I added a case study to the book, which I think the book very much needed since there are hundreds of Popovich in the book, if not thousands. And so I was able to have an entire section on one Popovich. And this particular Popovich, the ethnographer Dmitry Zelenin, lived from 1878, he had a long life, to 18, uh, excuse me, 1954. And he was a prominent ethnographer in the pre-revolutionary period and in the post-revolutionary period. He was only arrested for a few days in the 1930s. Uh, and he was always able to practice his profession. And so I was able to show how he was able uh, to um, live by Popovich's values, but also imbue these values into uh, his profession. Yet Dmitry Zelenin, like many Popovich, he did not marry. He did not have children. Uh, so I started to look at many graduate students, and uh, he helped rebuild Soviet ethnography after the profession was decimated in the 1930s. And so I started to look at the obituaries and the biographies that his graduate students had written and published about him. And I found that they were describing him very much like Popovich had described their fathers. <laughs> and so I ended up arguing that in the Soviet period, the Popovich ethos becomes truly modern in that it's no longer blood-based. The second way that I showed that Popovich's values uh, were transferred into Soviet academia was by doing a study of uh, obituaries written um, uh, about by Soviet historians, about Soviet historians in the 1970s and then in post-Soviet Russia. And I was able to show that the values, uh, because I find obituaries a fascinating genre because you're going to praise the person you're writing about, uh, not only with the values that you yourself uh, see as um, the ultimate ideals, uh, but also the biographies of the, or the values of the particular profession or, or collective. And I found that what they were praising the deceased for was very similar to that of Popovici. Hmm. Do, do you think that some of this, the vestiges of this ethos survive today, whether in the yes, clergy so. or outside? I, de I definitely do. I, in the, the obituaries I looked at of the post-Soviet period, I found this, again, of, of, of Russian historians, I found the same values. What's now going on in Russia, I ended the book by looking at how Popovici as a topic is now for the first time emerging in post-Soviet Russia. And it's mainly emerging among provincial scholars. They're not really interested in Popovici. They're interested in the clergy and in seminarians. Uh, and in, say, theological uh, academy professors, right, in the conservative element. They're not interested in the radical element, which was what was interesting to Soviet historians. Um, so there's a real interest in them. They haven't yet figured out or got interested in what this ethos is, and I'm afraid they're idealizing whatever it is they're finding. And as I think I show in my book, there were positive and negative aspects to Popovich's ethos. Uh, but they very much do see them as an alternative to the Soviet experiment, and they also affiliate themselves with them, just as I showed with Dmitry Zelenin's graduate students that they felt that these ended up being their values. 
I found uh, some of these historians writing about seminarians, you know, arguing this is our lost intelligentsia culture that we need to reclaim. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I'm always interested in how these things kind of turn up in a new key in, in post-Soviet Russia. So, yes. um, well, it's a fascinating book, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to talk to me about it. Um, so, what are you up to now? I am writing a book uh, called "The Colonial World Through Russian Eyes," and it examines Russians in Africa, China, and South America from 1861 to 1941. What I'm interested in is looking at how Russian travelers, diplomats, missionaries, emigres before the revolution uh, looked at themselves and looked at the various different nationalities they interacted with in the so-called colonial world. And then after 1917, when they are stateless refugees, how they look at these same issues of race, and nationality. And I find the colonial world so fascinating because they're not just coming into contact with indigenous people, they're also coming into contact with all sorts of Europeans uh, and Americans. Um, so I'm interested in seeing if there's only change or if there is continuity after 1917. It's allowing me to continue working with personal texts, which I obviously love violating people's privacy by reading <laughs> diaries and letters, uh, but also their autobiographies. But I'm also using the press extensively uh, in a way I didn't use as much for my, for my first book. Um, I use, I'm very interested in uh, missionary reports, uh, consular reports. I've already worked in 18 archives uh, on this project. I, I have more passion for this this project, I think, than I had for the, the Popovici project, which some people find hard to believe since I was so into Popovici. A friend of mine joked that um, I'm so into this project because I, uh, while I love teaching in Arizona State, I, I've had a hard time adjusting to Arizona, so I'm a native New Englander. So he argues that uh, I feel exiled here, so I feel this affinity uh, with these stateless refugees. Of course, I, I have a state, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure I ex accept. Right. Well, I look I look forward to seeing the work. It sounds fascinating. I mean, especially for me, I'm interested in issues of race, too. So uh, mm -hmm. especially how it works out. Uh, Russians abroad is, is a great topic. Well, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lori Manchester about her book, Holy Father, Secular Sons, Clergy, Intelligentsia, and the Modern Self in Revolutionary Russia. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies talks to Doug Rogers about his book, The Old Faith in a Russian Land, A Historical Ethnography of Ethics in the Urals. Until then, goodbye. Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо бы лампочку повесить, денег все не соберем.